0: is this the beginning of the end for rishi sunak it would be a delight if it was he's long been the golden boy of british politics although you know i have to say the thing that would bring him down is the pain and suffering of a hell of a lot of people in britain so not necessarily something to uncomplicatedly celebrate we are also tonight going to be talking about vladimir putin's latest rant against cancel culture he references a british author a very surreal development in his hideous war on Ukraine. I'm joined tonight by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. Great to be talking about the demise of Dishi Rishi. Touch word, fingers crossed. Rishi Sunak has long been the golden boy of British politics, but after his disastrous spring statement this week, it seems his political ambitions might be about to come unstuck. As we discussed on Wednesday's show, Rishi's spring statement was deeply regressive. As you can see from this analysis by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, it will leave the bottom half of income earners poorer. And for those in the very poorest groups, that drop in income will be over 5%. That's mainly driven by the refusal to increase benefits in line with inflation. But the bad news doesn't just apply to the poorest, which is perhaps why even some Tory papers did not provide happy reading for the Chancellor. Following this statement, both The Times and The Telegraph led with the OBR's assessment that Britain faced the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s, and the shattering of any impression of economic competence wasn't the only problem that faced Rishi Sunak. His media performances also were somewhat of a disaster. After multimillionaire Sunak posed for photos with an inexpensive Ria Kia, his aides were forced to confirm he had not been filling up his own car, but rather the car of someone who worked at the Sainsbury's he was visiting. Billionaire Sunak also sounded pretty awkward when asked about his shopping habits.
1: Finally, Chancellor, talking about Sainsbury's going to the supermarket, what is the one item when you hit the supermarket you've noticed going up in prices most? For me, it's crisps.
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) You know, it's probably, I mean, I think bread, probably. Go on, how much is that good? Well, uh, the, uh, the one that we buy, see, I think I'm sure it's now now about £1.20, pound twenty, and it was about one pound from, from memory, but it okay. was before. But what
1: is it out of interest?
2: What is what Which, is?
1: What's your favourite loaf? It's a
2: Hovis, it's a kind of seeded thing. From, well, we have a whole ba- range of different. Uh, seeded, well, we all have different breads in my house. The degree of healthiness between my wife, myself, and my kids. I'm also um,
1: partial to a seeded loaf. Thank you. I'll let you go. Yeah, thank uh, you. Transferring to Jack Thank you for your time this morning.
0: Thank you. Everyone in the Sunak family eats from a different loaf of bread most remarkably we have also discovered that our chancellor doesn't know how to pay for things after filling someone else's car with petrol he tried to pay for a can of coke by getting a shop assistant to scan his credit card <laughs> so the guy doesn't know how to use contactless so if he if he does know that bread has gone up from 1 pound to 1 pound 20 his favorite hovis seeded loaf then it's a mystery how he pays for it I suppose maybe he still uses chip and pin, but then there was a chip and pin machine there next to him. Doesn't make any sense. Maybe he still uses change. I don't know. Aaron, entertaining media appearances from him. We were always told that this was the guy who is really good at communicating with the public. Seems to, you know, the shine is coming off. Are we witnessing the beginning of the end of Rishi Sunak?
3: Maybe he's one of those big shots that just all walks around with like a thousand pounds worth of 50 pound (laughs) notes. You know, he he just does cash, you know, like the rich great uncle you know, the sort of stereotype, the archetype. Michael, I have to say, I don't believe the idea that he doesn't know how to use contactless. I don't believe that. I mean, the alternative, which I think is far more plausible, in a way is just as bad, which is he had a kind of brain freeze in the middle of a press opportunity. But you want to be the prime minister. I mean, that that really doesn't bode well. It's the sort of thing you associate with Theresa May. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. and, And I think he does know how to use contactless. And it's a technology that's been around five, 10 years. You know, he's only been the chancellor for, for a few of those. So, I mean, it would be absolutely extraordinary. But then again, Michael, how many billionaires do you and I know? Not many. I mean, maybe, maybe he literally hasn't done the shopping for years. The nanny gets all the stuff for the kids. You know, I have no idea. Maybe. It's, pl- it's certainly plausible. Ah, come on. Really? He doesn't use contactless ever?
0: I did actually know, um, I've only known one billionaire family. I sort of briefly taught the son. I will not say what exact family this was, but they did get nearly everything delivered. If you live in like central London in Mayfair, you've got these apps where you just want like a mm-hmm. bottle of shampoo and then someone goes to Boots for you and brings you the bottle of shampoo. So I can imagine that is very much a sort of Sunak household style of purchasing. Been a, but your £50 pound thing makes sense though. If he only plays with cash, right? You know, why wouldn't he have just got the two pounds out? Makes him look very relatable. And I think it is. He only plays with cash and he only plays with 50 pounds, 50 pound notes. And he was suddenly there thinking, like, oh my God, I cannot whip out the 50 pound note. I'm going to have to get him to scan my credit card. Stacks up. I think you've got it. Let's see how Sunak is responding to this rare bout of negative press. He's blaming the BBC. And the Sun report that the Chancellor has accused Labour of marching in lockstep with Labour. And the paper is of course, a big fan of Sunak. So they have been struggling with the fallout from his spring statement. The day after the mini-budget, they led with a completely different story, not wanting to highlight how the Chancellor would be making the living standards of their readers fall. And they are now running ostensibly negative stories about Sunak, but only from the right. Apparently, Kit Malthouse and Jacob Rees-Mogg have both argued at Cabinet that Rishi Sunak is spending too much. So they're not annoyed that people on benefits are getting a real terms cut of around 5%. They're annoyed that he's spending too much. They, they, they want the poor to be even worse off than they already are. Aaron, I want your take on, on the media's relationship to Rishi Sunak. He has been their darling. There are many elements of this spring statement that shouldn't really concern the media barons. The people who it's screwing over are generally the poor. Do you think there is any chance we're going to see them turn against him, especially the Murdoch home press? Can, can, is that even plausible, imaginable? Hard to see.
3: You know, in in British political culture, you do have a build them up and knock them down mentality from the media. And Boris Johnson is a a spent force. That's not to say he won't contest another election. He may do. I mean, that sounded implausible six months ago or three months ago. He may do, but I I think the idea that he's going to get anywhere near his majority last time is unlikely. I think best case scenario for the Tories is they get a majority like Labour did in, in 2005, 40, 50, 60, still very healthy, of course. But more plausible is that they get a, a decent majority or a working majority but not a big one and I think Johnson probably after that wouldn't contest another general election it may well be of course they lose a the majority entirely and that he would step down as prime minister and in that context you know the the heir apparent is is Rishi sunak um you've got Liz truss who I think actually has has managed to elevate her profile as foreign secretary in the last few weeks because of the Ukraine crisis but he's the only really outstanding outstanding candidate and I think you'd be You'd be remiss if you were the sun or the mail or the telegraph to, to to sever those connections with the most still, even now, as far as I understand it, Michael, maybe there's a poll out today. Even now, the most popular front ranking politician of Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, and Rachel Reeves. Of those four politicians, those two top two teams, he is still the most popular. So that would be surprising. I think it's in the pipeline. And I think what we've seen over the last sort of 48 hours is the the end of an air of invincibility around him, for sure. And Mr. Slick, Dishi Rishi, is no more. Uh, and that aura's gone. And so perhaps that's what we, could, we can expect to see over the next six months to a year. But I would be
0: surprised. I think uh, terrible media performances, it did feel like it potentially brought down Theresa May because she was put under no scrutiny for such a long time. Everyone was saying she's the most popular prime minister since Thatcher. The general election starts, you know, suddenly it gets difficult. She's up against you know, a decent campaign from Corbyn in, in that year, and everything starts to collapse. I think with Rishi Sunak, you know, I don't think the press are going to turn on him to that extent. But the real problem here for him, I imagine, will be that people are going to get a lot poorer over the next year, right? And he is associated as the economy guy. That's helped him up to now because people got furlough or whatever over the the pandemic. It could end up being a real a real burden for him that he is associated with the economic direction of the country. Also interesting, I mean, you were mentioning that, you know, like potentially Boris Johnson standing down after a general election. I think a lot of people are also expecting that he, he could possibly be toppled before a general election. And lots of people were saying that Rishi Sunak's budget was actually designed to appeal to Tory MPs. That's why he promised a tax cut in 2024, even though he said, oh, no, I couldn't possibly announce more help for, for energy bills because we don't know what the fiscal situation will be in by October, you know, when they're expected to go up again. But no, he's, he doesn't know the fiscal situation well enough to be able to tell us how we're going to pay our energy bills. But he does know the fiscal situation well enough to know that just before a general election, he's going to be able to cut taxes. So was he being too clever by half? He thought, this is how I'm going to appeal to the Tory backbenchers. But now by, you know, potentially really damaging his reputation, they might think, oh, maybe this guy isn't the winner we thought he was.
3: Yeah, there's two ways to look at it. Either you think that they're sort of completely detached from reality, and like you say, the the, the political emphasis here is on winning Tory backbenchers talking about cutting a, a rate of tax from twenty basic rate of tax from twenty to nineteen pence in the pound in 2024. There's another argument, which I think is probably too kind for Rishi Sunak, which is he's banked about 50 billion pounds here. Because of various tax rises and, and growth being better, obviously, in the last 12 months than the 12 months before that, this is how the FT framed it. He's banked $50 billion. And rather than engage in sort of giveaways like we've seen in, in Germany or in, in, in other countries, when I say giveaways, of course, trying to basically offer some relief to, to people who are about to see it a hell of a year. I mean, we'll talk about that in more a minute. He is weighing up his options and keeping back some of that fiscal firepower for, for later on. There's something to that, and I don't think it would be completely unwise. You know, this is the spring statement, it's not the autumn budget. And energy bills obviously are going to go up massively, but it's going to be next winter, which is the real problem. And actually, when you look at some analyses, so for instance, the Center for uh, Economics and Business Research, the CEBR, they're predicting economic growth this year of about 1.9%, one, one which is lower than the OBR, which is the Office of Budget Responsibility. But they're actually saying for 2023, they're saying 0%. So there is some wisdom, one might argue, in holding back till this autumn in terms of providing uh, extensive relief and massive measures in terms of bills and so on and so forth. I don't think that's the logic driving Rishi Sunak. And I think along that, you could say, well, look, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is a very dynamic situation. People are talking now about 10% food inflation in the UK this year. Like I said, lower growth. If you look at inflation with regards to things like fertilizer, wheat, obviously oil and gas, explosive. I mean, fertilizer is just seeing extraordinary inflation. And so I think there is an argument to be made, well, it makes sense to take a step back and reassess these things in two to three months because this could get really bad, right? The CEBR, as I've already mentioned, their report was from two weeks ago, basically looked at the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And their assessment is far worse than the OBR. So alongside that 0% growth in 2023, so a plausible recession as a result of this in Britain, not the EU, Britain. Alongside that, they were predicting a far bigger hit to wages. So the OBR, I think, is predicting a 2.2% hit to real wages, inflation outstripping wage increases. It works out about the average person is about £550 worse off. The CEBR is predicting something a lot worse than that. They're saying this year, £1,000 per person, I think it was around £2,500 per household. Average household is 2.5 people, 2.4 people. And something similar again next year. So the average person this year, according to the CBR, will be a thousand pounds worse off. And I think next year about four or five hundred pounds worse off, which is extraordinary, Michael. So the OBR numbers are nowhere near that bad. And even they're saying this is going to be the worst year for living standards since 1955 56 So if you're, again, being charitable with Rishi Sunak, it would be sensible to keep some fiscal firepower back. I don't think that's why he's doing it, though. I agree with you. This was a budget principally for the pundits, for the media, for some uh, archetypal cliche of the Tory voter who just cares about fuel prices and fundamentally about his backbenches.
0: He also hasn't really held fiscal firepower back because he's promised to cut taxes, which is the opposite of holding. You know, he, he, he said, oh, we are going to be in a position to, to cut taxes. So it, it doesn't seem to me that he really is you know, yeah, but that's not in any you know, one, in any way. Penny, so I'm suggesting. What I'm trying to do is keep something in the can that I can maybe use if things get even worse.
3: Yeah, but one, one penny in the pound on basic tax, which he's promising, is not fifty billion. You know, we have there is an extraordinary amount of leeway he, he presently has, and some of that was brought back with the, I mean, my God, Michael, we're not. I don't know if we're going to talk about it. The national insurance. This is what makes me think Sunak's a terrible politician. More than trying to pay with his card, right uh, to to somebody's like you know uh, scanning gun. More than that is the national insurance farrago. Everybody in the country now thinks they're going to be paying more national insurance because that's the Tory messaging to them for six months. National insurance contributions are going to go up. Your national insurance contributions are going to go up no matter how much you earn. And it's true, they go up from April for everyone. They go up because, of course, they're going up 1.25%, uh, 1.25 percent points, which is about 10%, which is a significant hit. What Sudak announced in the budget was an increase in the threshold of national insurance kicking in, which actually means come July, so you're going to pay that higher rate on national insurance from April to July. After July, and less than £42,000, you'll be paying less national insurance than before. So actually, I think 80% of the population is paying less national insurance after July than they were before. But everybody thinks they're paying more national insurance. You know, I had to dig deep and read about this for about 45 minutes. As a journalist, as somebody who's interested in these things, I finally worked out the exact dates and numbers, and I thought, "Wow, I I thought he was really slamming people here, and wow, they have really fucked this messaging." Um, So again, yes, it's it's funny to talk about the bread and him paying with the card. What this speaks to is actually someone who's not a very capable politician. You know, it's not just the photo shoots and the media appearances. He's he's really screwed up core policy and its relationship to messaging. I would be very surprised if somebody like that becomes a successful Tory leader and prime minister. Very different to Boris Johnson. People like to knock Boris Johnson, but you know he was always talking about getting Brexit done and levelling up, two things which were really core cool commitments and people associated with him. Sunak seems very different. He seems all over the place. So if this national insurance farrago is anything to go by, very, very, very poor politician.
0: You're right, Aaron, the, at least in the short term, the outcome of the national insurance changes, if you add both of them together, is for most voters, the increase in the national insurance threshold, that on its own makes everyone a little bit richer than they otherwise would have been. The increase in the national insurance rate makes everyone a little bit poorer, but for most people, the increase in the threshold has cancelled out, and some, the, the increase in the national insurance rate. So that on its own was not, was not a bad policy, and Aaron, you're right, people think they're paying more of it. Many people will be paying less. The big issue, though, was what he didn't do that he didn't increase benefits by the rate of inflation, which is why, if you're in the poorest households, you are going to be more than 5% poorer over the next 12 months. You know, and so, oh, Rishi Sunak having a bit of extra fiscal firepower, it's not necessarily going to be that much of a consolation if you are. I know, I, I take your point, Aaron, that these energy bills, that's really going to kick in next winter because we're about to go into the summer. But I think there is going to be, in the here and now, a lot of people struggling to pay their bills. Let's go to our next story. Rishi Sunak had got used to being treated with kid gloves by the British media, but now they're getting a little tougher and he doesn't appear to know how to react. Let's take a look at the awkward moment he was challenged about his wife's business on Sky.
1: You you mentioned that and you mentioned the pressure on Russia. Um, It's been reported uh, that that you've got family links to Russia, that your wife apparently has a stake in the Indian IT consultancy firm Infosys. they operate in Moscow. They have an office there. They have a delivery office there. They've got a connection to the Alpha Bank in Moscow. Are you giving advice to others that you're you're not following in your own home?
2: That's not. I'm an elected politician, and I'm here to talk to you about what I'm responsible for. Uh, my wife is not.
1: She is not. But but equally, if you, if you you know, as as a country, we are asking taxpayers to fund the UK's support for Ukraine. We're asking people in the UK to give their homes up to Ukrainian refugees, whereas it, whereas it appears your family potentially could be benefiting from Putin's regime.
2: No, I, I really I don't think that's the case. And as I said, uh, the, the operations of all companies are up to them. Uh, we've, we've put in place significant sanctions and all the companies that we are responsible for are following those, as they rightly should, sending a very strong message uh, to Putin's aggression.
1: Do you know if
0: Infosys is?
2: I have, I have absolutely no idea because I have
0: nothing to do with that company. He didn't like that, did he? He also hadn't noticed before. He looked kind of hung over, really, really red eyes there. Let's, before we discuss that interview, look at the facts behind the controversy. The company Sunak was being asked about is Infosys. It's an international IT firm based in Bangalore. And it was founded in 1981 by, among others, this man. N.R. Narayana Murphy no longer runs Infosys, but he does retain a substantial stake in it. His net worth stands at an estimated $4.3 billion. Mr. Murphy's daughter is also involved in the company. Akshata Murphy owns around 1% of Infosys, and as was made clear in that interview, she's also Rishi Sunak's wife. Now, 1% of a company might not sound like a lot, and this is the angle Rishi Sunak's spokesperson is going for. So they said, Miss Murphy is one of thousands of minority shareholders in the company. It is a public company and neither her nor any member of her family have any involvement in the operational decisions of the company. That may or may not be true. I've got no idea, but Miss Murphy's stake in Infosys is not insignificant. The company is valued at around $107 billion. So her almost 1% stake, it's 0.9% stake, makes her a billionaire you know, by most definitions. And as that Sky host said, Infosys is currently still operating in Russia. Let's just remind you of what Rishi Sunak said to UK businesses less than two weeks ago. Since the start of the
2: Russian invasion, we've seen widespread commitments from firms and investors to end their involvement with Russian assets, or in other words, to divest. Companies such as BP, Shell, Aviva, M&G, and Vanguard, to name but a few, have already announced their intention to reduce or sell holdings in Russia. I want to make it crystal clear that if firms or investors decide that they need to end their financial relationship with Russia, then the government fully supports you. And when I met leading businesses last week, I welcomed the consensus on the need to inflict maximum economic pain on Putin and his regime. Until recently, the UK companies held tens of billions of pounds of investments in Russian assets. While I recognise that it may be challenging to wind down existing investments, I believe there is no argument for new investment in the Russian economy. I am urging asset owners and managers to think very carefully about any investments that would in any sense support Putin and his regime. As the Prime Minister has said, diplomatically, politically, economically And eventually, militarily, this hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure.
0: So that's Sunak's message to UK businesses, many of which are currently divesting from Russia incurring costs in the process. But the company that makes his wife a billionaire is still operating there. Aaron, Rishi Sunak has tried to deny that his family are benefiting from work Infosys are doing in Russia, but that's not really credible, is it? I mean, if they're working in Russia, she's a shareholder of them, then she is financially benefiting from whatever they're doing in Russia.
3: Yeah, I, I think much of the electorate doesn't actually grasp how rich Rishi Sunak is. You know, I mean, we talk about, you know, 1%, an elite. There have been very few people this privately wealthy in politics in Britain ever. You know, a recent example would be Zach Goldsmith. I think he was reputedly worth between two and 300 million pounds. You know, su- Sunak's in that league. And of course, it's his wife who's wealthy and he's married into wealth, as well as being, you know, quite successful himself in, in the financial services before becoming a politician. But he is married into major, major money. Talk about the Camerons. You know, I think uh, Dodgy Dave, you know, he had uh, an inheritance from his father, which was subject to particular tax arrangements and so on. but. Compared to the money at the disposal of uh, Sunak and his wife, Small Fry, and I think for the media sometimes that can be quite difficult to communicate um, how how wealthy these people are. You know, it's not just they own one or two nice houses; they are immensely wealthy. I mean, even like N- Nadim Zahawi, who I think is worth approximately, I think he's got a property portfolio of between forty and fifty million pounds, which is obviously nuts, which is just a crazy amount of money to have. And this ter- person's talking, how can we solve the housing crisis? Well we could probably appropriate all your properties and, and, and maybe put them on the market. And uh, that, that that would be uh, pushing things in the right direction. Even Nadim Zahawi, who, who has this extraordinary property wealth, is nothing compared to the Sunaks. And as well as the media, I think it's also quite difficult for regular people to get it. You know, Unless you live in London and you're looking literally at the city of London, these huge gleaming skyscrapers, and you see how these people live, it's very hard to comprehend. And I think I won't say who this is. I didn't really understand it myself until a few years ago. I went to meet somebody. I was, I was making a video for a, a think tank. You know, I, I can say this. I used to work at IPPR, freelancing. I won't say the individual. And I went to this person's London flat. It was like walking into a department store, Michael. They had a gym the size of like, you know, Navara has uh, two studios in London. Put that together. It was like the gym was five times bigger. And I thought, whoa, these people are on another, they are on another planet. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do that millennial tick, say they're literally on another planet, because they're not literally on another planet, but they they might as well be, Michael. So it's very difficult to communicate that level of wealth. Very, very hard also to politicize it, because to the average person, I'm from Bournemouth, the average person in Bournemouth, the guy two miles away with a nice house next to the golf course worth 700 grand, that's money. No, Rishi Sunak is on a whole other level.
0: So apparently, The Telegraph have recently revealed, or revealed just now, in fact, that Rishi Sunak's wife was handed 12 million pounds in dividends from Infosys last year. It's, this is not just in the abstract that, you know, we can consider this her wealth because she owns these shares, and it would hypothetically be worth this much money. No, she's, she's accruing millions of, of pounds in income every year from a, from a company that's, that's currently operating in Russia. And I suppose, let's let's just go through quickly, sort of, the defences that Rishi Sunak has given and why they're bullshit. First of all, he says, this is my wife, not me. You know, the argument that, you know, this is, this is my personal life. You have no right to ask about my loved ones. I'm the person who went into politics. They aren't. Well, this is a financial question that concerns your household. Now, most households, they kind of share money. Well, what is going to be her income is partly going to be Rishi Sunak's income. So it really is, you know, our, our right as members of the public to know how people in Rishi Sunak's household are making money. You know, we don't necessarily need to know their sexual kinks or their favorite TV shows, but where they are getting money from, I think that's a very reasonable thing to ask a politician. So I think that one should go out the window. The other argument that keeps coming up, this is what the, what the spokesperson said, the, the quote that we showed you, is that she doesn't control the company. There's nothing to do with her. Well, if you are a shareholder with almost, it seems to, to be a billion dollars worth of shares, then you do have some influence over that company. And If Rishi Sunak was serious about businesses doing what he's telling them to do, then the very least that his wife should do is divest from that company. She should say, look, you know, I I happen to be married to the British chancellor who is trying to persuade everyone to divest in Russia. So it would obviously be inappropriate for me to be profiting from a company that's operating in Russia. So what I'm going to do is divest my shares. That could even be, you know, if Rishi Sunak and his family want some media advice, that would be a great story. Obviously, now it would seem a bit too reactive if they got ahead of the news. You know, if they'd done that the day after Rishi Sunak published that video, that would have been a really good news story for them. Instead, what we've got is Rishi Sunak looking incredibly shifty. It's an incredibly two-faced thing to do, to tell companies to do one thing and then to profit from your wife doing another thing. doesn't stack up. I mean, I've got an answer that I think what
3: Sunak could have done, you know, sometimes the right response from a conservative politician or ideologue is to kind of invert the identity politics thinking. So I think in that situation, the only way he could have got out of it was to say, look, if I was a a female politician and you were asking me or holding me accountable for what my husband had done, we'd call that sexism, right? And that's the sort of thing that Tory base loves. And I think normally, actually, that that would even possibly work. And of course, that's nonsense as well because you're in a legal relationship with somebody. You're married. You're you're an entity together. Of course, it matters. By the way, if somebody benefits from the proceeds of criminal activity or whatever, and they they have a joint asset with their husband or wife, that that's also treated in in particular ways. But I think with this, I think with war, again, it's just something which has completely overridden their sort of mental landscape. Right? I mean, they just presume. Globalization, global economy, be able to freely move money from one market to another. You see it also with Jacob Rees Mogg, right? And the presence of his various financial firms. I mean, Christ, there's so many. One in Dublin, despite the fact we're leaving the EU. You know, some business with Russia, despite the fact we're at war with them. I don't know what the present state of that is, I should say. But, you know, there was a, a certain amount of business liaison. And their presumption is this is how the world has always been, will always be. And in fact, that's not the case. The, the world being this giant integrated global economy is relatively recent, it's since the early 1990s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, integration of China into the global uh, labour market. And, and, you know, it looks at the moment like it's coming apart. And so for these people who've not just ideologically invested in this, but also materially benefit from it, that's hugely, hugely troubling. So it's almost that you have these two faces of of conservatism, anti-globalisation forces, often nativist, ultra-nationalist, people like Farage, Marine Le Pen, and then you've got the sort of highly affluent liberal conservative wing, people like Rishi Sunak, and and this entire settlement, and by the way, Farage wasn't the person he often claimed to be, but this entire settlement within which they could have this debate is, is, is kind of crumbling now. I mean, for now it's Russia, but it could be China in two years. You know, One day it could be Qatar, it could be Saudi Arabia things are moving really quickly in terms of deglobalization. So
0: something to keep your eyes on. We're not done with Rishi Sunak yet. One more short story on Rishi Sunak, and then we're going to move on to the other stories of the day. On this show, we've criticized Rishi Sunak's spring statement for not offering enough help for those struggling with the cost of living crisis. The most viral clip from BBC Question Time this week had an audience member attack the government from a different angle.
4: I
1: can't tell you how disappointed I am with your government. I just, I really can't express in words um, the mess you've made. Um, I sat through the pandemic and I watched money being hemorrhaged away, money that we could well do with now. I think you're out of touch. You're dealing in millions and millions and trillions of pounds. You know, the cost of everything and the value of nothing. We're up to there in debt, wishing we were taller. I don't know what to say to you, other than just a lot of you, just go. Just go. and I, and and this is from someone that voted for you. What a disappointment you are.
5: So.
0: That clip's now been viewed around a million times, on, on Twitter, that is. And I have to say, when I watched that clip, I was in two minds. I do like to see a Tory getting taken down in, in public, especially when you get that huge round of applause afterwards. At the same time, that, that critique, which seemed to be very popular in the room, comes from a regressive place, I think. You know she, She's essentially saying, you're spending too much. You need to tighten your purse strings Aaron, was that a demand for, for austerity that was getting a round of applause?
3: Yeah, and there's so many sort of blue-tick libs who are going to be like, oh, like clapping like seals, isn't this great? They're attacking the Tories. She, this, is, this is awful. She's saying things which are categorically untrue. We ha- she's saying, well, we could do without money now. We have the money now. We have the money now. Public debt's still only around, I think, 90% of GDP. We, we have the money. And the idea that, oh, the crisis we're going through now in some way is bad for national debt, High inflation is bad on many counts. High inflation is terrible on many counts. One thing it's really good for is the fact that it winds down the real value of liabilities and debts, because that's what inflation is. So the idea that high inflation, oh my God, we really have to worry about the national debt. Well, No, because it's actually falling in relative value. Michael, austerity started like 12 years ago. I have to say, you know, it was pushed, not principally by the Tories, but by the media. And it has warped people's understanding of how macroeconomics works. Now, look, it's always very difficult to understand, but actually, it turns out that the presumption that, look, the state is quite a powerful thing, it can do things that the rest of us can't, is correct. The Bank of England is not like a credit card. Okay. So we could spend more money during COVID. That doesn't mean that we can't do certain counter cyclical measures, as they're called, right now, too. And like I say, In fact, when borrowing costs are so low and inflation is so high, it's Goldilocks for for your debt because you you can spend money using government debt, repayment rates are relatively low, the interest rates are relatively low, and it's getting cheaper anyway because of inflation. So economically illiterate. But I think so many people, like I say, particularly blue tick libs, Michael, are so desperate to own the Tories, they're willing to buy into the most reactionary right-wing, market-fundamentalist political economy imaginable. I think, that's, I think that's a bit of a worry. So the woman, she was a fool for voting Tory in 2019, and
0: she's still a fool. Sorry. Oh, you're not supposed to tell the voters that, Aaron. I suppose you're not a politician, so it doesn't really matter. The more optimistic way of looking at that clip, I mean, I agree. As I said, I do think what was, what was said in that clip was incredibly reactionary. The more positive way of looking at it, if you want the Tories out of government, is if you think about you know, people's attitude to the economy as kind of just vibes. You know, so the vibe now is that the Tories are less good at the economy than the vibe about the Tories was, say, a year ago. And we have some evidence that this is sort of how people are thinking about this. So Labour are now more trusted to handle the economy than the Conservatives. A poll from Opinion following the Spring Statement found that 32% of the public would trust Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves most to handle the economy, with only 31% saying Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. And that's a pretty dramatic reversal from last year, when 39% said they'd trust the Tories and only 25% said Labour. We can also show you a more detailed breakdown here. So when it comes to bringing down the national debt, that's the only metric on which people are still most confident that Conservatives would be able to do it. Running the economy a much more sort of general abstract things. People trust Labour to do that, 34 to 32, for spending government money efficiently. Labour are in the lead, 36 to 26%. Um, and in improving public services and improving a financial situation, Labour are well ahead. Aaron, Labour are going to be pretty pleased with that, aren't they? Starmer and, and Rachel Reeves. Well, it's, it's actually quite rare for, for Labour to be ahead on the general economics metric.
3: Yeah, so I was very critical of that of that woman just now, and I should say, so was, in terms of an electoral calculus for Labour, it's still obviously excellent that s- somebody is saying I'm a Tory voter and I think you should now go, and I think you're a disgrace. And it's obviously positive in terms of political expediency for the Labour Party. My worry is, Michael, look, we have multiple problems as a society which we're presently facing, which are coming down the line: mass inequality, housing crisis. You know, we're now looking by 2025 at wages being flat for 17, 18 years. You know we left I left university and I have entered a world which literally short of a war couldn't have gone more wrong, really couldn't have gone more wrong. If you entered the labor market say in in, in two thousand six seven, things have not turned out like you thought, and if we want to uh, get over like I say inequality, stagnant wages, stagnant productivity, then deal with climate change, then demographic aging, then regional inequality, then national infrastructure. You want to do all of this stuff, right? The very premise of that question, will you be good on the economy, is not the way to look at this. Now, I understand Labor have to want to be good at the economy. I get that. And and that's the the nature of the beast. I I understand that entirely. But if we're going to be stuck in this political rut where you say, well, you're running more than a 3% deficit this year. That's terrible. That's bad politics. You're bad on the economy. Well, look, we've had stagnant wages for 15 years, according to the OBR coming out of 2025 precisely because of this orthodoxy. Is that good on the economy? You know, in 2015, you had the the Confederation of British Industry and a bunch of absolute chumps, I should say, saying, don't vote Labour. These, you know, dangerous left-wingers vote Tory. Sensible, pragmatic, austerity economics. But productivity stayed flat for 10 years. What's productivity? It means the amount of work people are doing per hour, the output isn't going up. That's not meant to happen, right? You have innovation, you have technological development, etc. That's that's simply not meant to happen. Something is short-circuited in the last fifteen years with our economic model. So the idea that we're therefore going to say who's going to continue administering economics as usual better—that is the wrong question to be asking. The question we should be asking is who's going to deal with the housing crisis, who's going to reduce inequality, who's going to sort out public services, who's going to deal with stagnant wages, who's going to deal with climate change and demographic ageing, and an imminent elderly care crisis coming down the line in a decade or two. Those are the serious questions to be asking. So yes, Labor should take sucker from the fact that these are really promising survey uh, and polling data heading their way. But if we're actually interested fundamentally in the more important question of how do we solve these problems, they're less important than they look.
0: Let's go straight on to our next story. Since invading Ukraine, Putin's livestream speeches have often seemed unhinged. They've now got positively surreal. In his latest address from the Kremlin, he attacked cancel culture in the West and cited the treatment of Harry Potter author, JK. Rowling.
5: Students begin yesterday, we know this very well. In Hollywood, they avoided films even when they only they, they made films where they only we know the, the country that defeated fascism was the United States, and and didn't say anything about the Red Army. But if you look at the number of military units fighting in the East, that was the Russian units. So they they just canceled the contribution of the Red Army into the defeats of the Nazis. And in Japan, they they. Uh, In Japan, uh, they don't even mention who dropped uh, the bomb on Hiroshima and and Nagasaki, or they just say it was done by some abstract allies. And uh, the fact that it was the United States uh, who did such uh, an awful uh, slaughter at the end of the war this fact is not even mentioned. So they just cancelled cynically this truth. They cancelled Joan Rowling recently, the child, the children's author. Her books are published all over the world, even just because she didn't satisfy the demands of gender rights.
0: Must have been quite a surreal speech to be translating, you got to sort of have a, have a double take. Is he actually saying this? But, you know, fair play to her for having the confidence to, to genuinely live tweet it. She didn't sound like she was having too many second thoughts. Aaron, is Russia, just like J.K. Rowling, being cancelled by the West?
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've been talking on this show for a few weeks, Michael, about what does Putin's off-ramp look like? Uh, will it be a negotiated peace settlement, which means the Donbass region is given autonomy, or Crimea is recognised as Russian sovereign territory. Well, it may be that uh, Vladimir Putin goes on the Joe Rogan experience and gets a monthly column in The Observer talking about cancel culture because he sounds increasingly like uh, one of these reactionaries that you see on the US, right? Or indeed in this country, on the so-called political center. Uh, It is nonsense. And like you say, imagine being that translator. (laughs) Wait, he's talking about the author of Harry Potter? (laughs) This is a war where Russia itself has lost it seems 10,000 soldiers. I mean, it's a huge conflict. We're seeing the most extensive economic sanctions imposed on a country in history. And, and you're talking about the author of a children's book and like LGBT rights. Um, this isn't a coincidence. You know, they, they, they do share these people, not necessarily J.K. Rowling, but the kinds of people that go on to the Joe Rogan experience and talk about cancel culture. And, uh, and I love criticizing liberals and liberalism, right, Michael? But the thing they have in common is this idea of like a critique of liberal modernity and identity. They do share that, right? Somebody like Melanie Phillips and Vladimir Putin share criticisms and critiques on a whole range of issues. And people might think, oh, too far. That's really unfair on on people that you politically disagree with domestically. No, he 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 openly calls the West a decadent society. I mean, I think we we have a decadence in our societies for very different reasons. I think it's because you've got people like Rishi Sunak and various other politicians worth tens of millions of pounds each. I think that's a problem of decadence, sure. Uh, but he leans into the idea that we're ideologically and ethically decadent as societies. And look, that's the calling card of many people who, who earn their keep uh, writing columns and appearing on the BBC and going on BBC Question Time. Vladimir Putin and his points, his like talking points, could very easily be an audience member or a panelist on BBC Question Time.
0: Seriously. And this is one of them, right? I mean, what's interesting, you know, because if you, if you think about it sort of in relation to discourse about sort of cancel culture in this, in this country, like we've often talked about how, you know, channels like GB News explicitly started to say, we are going to be challenging cancel culture. And it wasn't even like a powerful enough argument or idea to make a successful cable show, a successful cable channel in the UK. And now Vladimir Putin is trying to use this as a talking point to justify a completely unjustifiable war but i mean he's he's more talking to the russian audience here so he, this is supposed to justify the loss of you know potentially 10, 10 russian troops so far it, it does seem a little bit desperate i can't imagine that is going to really motivate the russian people and think yeah this war is is worth it let's watch the rest of putin's rant about cancel culture
5: they're not trying to cancel our country, I'm talking about the progressive discrimination of everything to do with Russia, this trend that's unfolding in a number of Western states with the full uh, neglect or sometimes encouragement of Western cultures that they're now engaging in the cancel culture. They're even uh, removing Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, Rachmaninov from uh, uh, posters. Russian writers and their books are are cancelled. There's now uh, the latest uh, program uh, to cancel world literature was uh, conducted by the Nazis in Germany, 90 years. Years ago, we remember those that, that footage when they were burning books. It's impossible to imagine such a thing in our country. And we're insured against this thanks to our culture. And it's inseparable for us from our motherland, from Russia, where there is no place for ethnic intolerance, where for centuries, representatives from dozens of ethnic groups have been living together. and. Uh, Cultural diversity is the pride of our society, the strength and priority of our state.
0: We have talked on this show about how the cultural boycott of Russia has gone too far and, you know, potentially will play into Vladimir Putin's hands if it seems to Russian people like the rest of the world just hate sort of the concept of Russianness, not something that's directed necessarily at their government's policy, but Russia itself that could, you know, reinforce Vladimir Putin. I I just think sort of tied to the language of cancel culture. I can't see how that's going to be particularly persuasive to the Russian people. And on a moral level, I mean, on a moral level, this is a guy who's committing an ongoing war crime against a population of 40 million people. We don't even, you know, really need to discuss that. That's an absolute given that this is an abhorrent person doing an abhorrent thing. But on specifically this issue of cancel culture, he also happens to be shutting down any independent media platform in his, his country. And he's just instituted a 15-year jail term for anyone who says anything about the war, which he doesn't like. And by the way, they're not even allowed to call it a war. They have to call it a military operation. This is a guy now complaining about cancel culture. Aaron, in a way, it seems odd that we're sort of, I'm trying to take down Vladimir Putin for inconsistency. I don't think he's someone who particularly cares, but it is still, it's odd, isn't it? So it's very, very surreal to see this guy complain about people Canceling things, which is which is you know, usually comes from the perspective of we are free speech absolutists. He's he's definitely not one of those. The so-called tolerant West,
3: I mean, you know, he could have really leaned into this more, Michael. You know, the so-called tolerant liberal West, you know, and they could have maybe RT like you know, Putin destroys woke culture. Anyway, <laughs> it is it it is weird, and, and like you say, Michael, there's no point saying oh. Putin's been inconsistent on this point. The guy has like MiG-24s and the and uh, this this huge military machine. He doesn't really, he doesn't care. You know, it's like Stalin's point with regards to the Pope. You know, how many divisions does he have? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's a strange one to talk about, but I think also it does speak to something really important and profound, Michael, which is, and I'm sure many of our audience are aware of this, if you go into sort of far right group chats on Telegram and so on, See their talking points, despite the fact, and it should be said, there's a there is a big neo-Nazi presence within the Ukrainian armed forces, particularly their better armed units, so the Azov Brigade, for instance. Despite that, the European far right is generally supporting Putin, which would be counterintuitive, wouldn't it? Of course, there is the fact that Putin has groomed, or the, Moscow, the Kremlin, has groomed the European far right for a decade, sp- spending money, giving money, sending people and thinkers over. Offering loans, you know, the Front National took a nine million euro loan from Russian banks. There's no European banks would give them money. They were offered lines of credit up to fifty million euro. This is not an accident. So that's part of it. But also, I think you look at people like Tommy Robinson. You look at various far right people, and they are searching for a post liberal politics. Tucker Carlson, and I don't think Tucker Carlson should be as a tra- tra- traitor and treason, and he should, you know, be given the death penalty or whatever these lunatics, these liberal lunatics are saying in the United States. But there is an important resonance here, which is all of these people are searching for a post-liberal settlement. No, I'm not a liberal. I'm a socialist, right? But I do agree with liberals on one thing, which is that individuals are uniquely placed to determine what happiness is and how they should live their lives. That's That's a liberal insight, which I agree with. And of course, the right doesn't. The right, so actually what you think happiness is and what you want is secondary to tradition, authority, the state, how, how things have been done for generations. So it's a very different worldview. It is not an accident that people critical of the most contemporary forms of liberal modernity, but which, by the way, doesn't always get things right. There's lots I disagree with about it as well. But there's a lesson for us on the left, which is, if the entirety of your politics is premised on you know, shitting on the libs, you're going to end up in quite a weird place. You're going to end up in a a place where people are denying women the right to abortion. You're going to be ending in a place where you've got people who are um, pro-arranged marriage or ethno-nationalism, you know, and this is, of course, a spectrum. But that's where a lot of the the most radical manifestations of post-liberal politics can end up. I'm I'm interested in post-liberal politics. I want a socialist politics of universal emancipation of both the individual and society quite complicated, you can read about in my book, uh, available online. But the point is, uh, this is something really, really significant. And it's not an accident that fascist talking points and the talking points of Vladimir Putin on this issue overlap with certain British columnists. It's not an accident.
0: Final story. Graham Linehan is the Irish comedian responsible for hit TV shows like Father Ted and Black Books. He's also a professional transphobe. This week, Linnehan appeared on the BBC, speaking to Stephen Nolan. He accused transgender people of taking everything from him.
4: The more time passed, I was I was standing up. I was I was trying to explain myself as clearly as possible. When they couldn't come for me, they came for my wife. They released my wife's address online. They um, sent the police to my home. You know, the police have been to my house uh, several times. I've, I, I. There's, I'm living in a flat now because eventually the pressure of all this drove my wife and I, and I apart and we divorced. Um, because of this? Yes. It must feel like a lonely place and it must hurt and it must mess you up. It, yeah, yeah. You know, they took everything from me, you know. Like what? What do you mean? They took my, they took my, fam- my family, you know. You know, before this, I, all I was doing was, you know, writing comedy and playing board, board games and, and, set, and being silly on the internet. And then I just said, no, hang on a sec. Stop calling these women TERFs. Stop sending them abuse. Let them speak. And for that, they, they just destroyed me. Do you honestly feel destroyed? no because because the one thing about this the one thing about this that keeps me going is that i know i'm right you know
0: i don't know graham if your campaign to defend women's rights ended with your wife leaving you maybe you should be a little less confident that you're right just just something to think about mate something to think about in case you're not familiar with linihan's reincarnation as an anti-trans activist in 2020 Twitter decided to ban him from the platform after tweeting, men aren't women though, in response to a pride post by the Women's Institute in support of its transgender members. So I'm here to defend women's rights. He's like trolling the Women's Institute Twitter page. He had already received a warning from West Yorkshire police after a 2018 row with the transgender activist, I haven't got her name right in front of me now, Stephanie Hayden, where he deadnamed her. The tweet in question was... This. Um, so he says, My run in with Stephanie Hayden made the Times' favorite bit is where, and then he, he dead names her, explains how it's perfectly legal and normal to have multiple identities. But if you don't call him the female one, you're doing a hate crime. I just think that it's so repulsive when people sort of glory in calling someone the, the the gender they were assigned with when they've transitioned. Linehan also did it more than once. Um, so he says, Oh, one thing on this. and he does the dead naming is claiming I doxed him again? This is a woman, and of course I did no such thing. Everything I retweeted was already available online. Really horrible. Um, also um, on Twitter, he was often just a complete rabid bully. That includes like here, where if we can get this up, he accuses Grace Lavery of grooming because she teaches queer and trans studies to university students. This was because she was saying it's it's better to do this in person than online. He calls her a, a groomer, or here where he calls the organizers of the Women's March in London traitors for being trans-inclusive. This is someone who talks about himself as if he's defending women's rights. This clip from BBC Newsnight in 2020 also gives a good sense of quite how unhinged Graham Linehan is.
1: Has stepping in made the debate any better? I mean, a lot of people say that the language you've used, some of the dismissive terms that you've bandied about have actually increased the toxicity of this C- debate. Can you give me an example? Yes, you can. You, yeah, I'll, I'll give you several if you want. So <laughs> um, what about comparing people in the trans debate to speaking out against Nazis? I mean, that's pretty extreme.
4: Well, there's a couple of parallels. One is that uh, at the moment, um, children are... Uh, basically being experimented on with... uh... Uh, puberty blockers, uh, for instance Oh young... come on,
1: you're not seriously trying to say that children going to the doctor and saying that they're worried about their gender is akin to children being experimented on in Nazi I, concentration camps. I'm
4: afraid I am because Lupron, which is which is um, a drug that's supposed to be meant for end-stage cancer treat uh, prostate cancer treatment, is being given to okay, young girls. These... It has never been tested on girls. It has never been tested on women. Now, that's happening no, to no, young well, women. Luke, the Luke, there's a couple of issues here. One of, one of them is
1: that these are doctors who are doing this and you don't have any medical training to know about this. But the other is that they are doing it by choice. It is Deeply offensive to compare this to Nazi concentration camps. Where oh, no, no, no. Were...
4: don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing it to Nazi concentration camps. That's, 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 and also. Well, that's,
1: that's, no, that's no. basically what you said. Was well, no, the no, no. experimenting on children is what the Nazis did and what
4: doctors are doing today. Well, one of the other things that Tavistock whistleblowers reported was that homophobic parents were bringing in their gender non-conforming kids and telling them to fix them. You know, there was a dark joke that went around to Tavistock where they said that in, in a couple of years, there'll be no gay people left. You know, now that's why I compare it to eugenics programs and things like that. If you want to have a reasonable debate about what's going on with gender identity in this country, we can't
1: talk about Nazis. The
4: the thing about the Nazi comment was was what I was trying to get across was that. This is a hinge moment in history, just like, just like during the Nazis. And we always ask ourselves the same questions. We ask ourselves, what would I have done? Would I have bowed down? Would, have, would I have done, done everything I was told to do? Or would, have I, would I have resisted? Would I have stood up and would I have stood up alongside people who are trying to do the right thing? That's what I'm trying to do at the moment.
0: Wow. I mean, there were questions at the time of the wisdom of, of BBC Newsnight platforming this guy who doesn't know that much about the issue to say quite hateful things, but... At least you can say the the host there gave quite a a challenging interview. Stephen Nolan gave him a complete softball interview to get to claim that trans people took everything from him when actually it was just that his wife left him because he'd become an obsessive transphobe online. On that note, on a side note, Linehan's ex-wife, so that's Helen Serafinowicz, posted this image on Instagram this morning. Um, Of course, we we can't say for sure this indicates unhappiness with her ex-husband's framing of the situation. But, you know, it's a bit of a coincidence that this comes up today. Helen's brother, who is called James Serafinowicz, he posted this tweet in 2020. Um, So that's around the time that the marriage ended. So this is a little bit more explicit. And it suggests that things didn't go quite according um, to what Linehan suggested. So he says, calling people beards and telling others to fuck off 18 hours a day is definitely worth losing your family for. So, some insight into what really happened in that relationship. The reference there is to Linehan's bizarre habit of endlessly calling those who support trans rights beards. Why is this guy still getting softball interviews from the BBC?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question, Michael. I mean, who, what, what purpose does this serve? I don't get it. I mean, he, he, has, lost, he has lost a lot of things. And quite frankly, I think his wife made a sensible decision to leave him if this is how he's conducting himself. It's a really, really strange one. And for me, and obviously I think everything he said is disgusting and awful and dehumanizing. But I don't understand at what point he decided doing that, just tweeting this bile, and he's not even on Twitter anymore, was worth losing his family and career over. I don't understand. And I think it must boil down to some Messiah complex he has. He's going to be the one who redeems a group of people. I don't know. Although there's no rational explanation for it. There really is no rational explanation for it. And he, he, even now he's saying, well, if he was crying and all that, and he's like, I can't believe what I've done. I'm such an idiot. He say, well, this is, again, internally logical. And he's saying, no, I'm right. So he must think it was worth it. I'm right. Very, very, very strange, very strange individual. I'm happy his wife's left him. I mean, you know, good, good luck to her. It's not a nice environment to raise kids in either. And I'm not, I'm not somebody who enjoys seeing the suffering of others, even if they're my own mortal enemy. I've never met this guy. But it's, it's really puzzling, Michael. I mean, it's a fixation. It's a neurosis for him. And that's how, that's how I think he needs treatment for it. You know, I don't think he should be given softball interviews on the BBC. And I don't think this bizarre alternative reality he's constructed where he's, like I say, some sort of protean messiah I don't think it should be enabled by anybody, least of all a public service broadcaster.
0: The other thing that had been taken away from him was not just his family, it was also that he had made uh, Father Ted the Musical. I think that was the prompt for him having that interview there with, with Stephen Nolan. So I mean, you know, I enjoy Father Ted. I'm not going to stop watching Father Ted. I also don't think it's a real tragedy that Father Ted the Musical is not getting made because presumably he wrote the the musical is still committed to being incredibly abusive to vulnerable minority in the population. So no sympathy for this guy. And I think Stephen Nolan should start being a little bit more critical, a little bit more questioning of the transphobic people that he keeps you know, speaking to on air. He made an 11-part podcast series. I have to say, I only listened to six episodes of it. It was basically very, very scaremongering about Stonewall and their advocacy for trans rights. Didn't really interview any experts who were on the side of saying gender-affirming surgery or treatment is, is a good thing. I thought it was pretty poor journalism myself. Obviously, I don't want to impute his motives. Um, I don't know what he's thinking when he makes this content. Aaron, thank you for joining me tonight. Michael, it's been my pleasure.
3: I think, I think Linehan has some obsessive traits. Your obsessive trait is making this show, I think, the best in, uh, in British politics. And I'm glad to be a part of it.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let's hope I don't get cancelled for that. No. that's that's playing into their argument of course i won't you only get cancelled if you you know anyway different topic um thank you for joining us this evening and watching we'll be back on monday at 7 p.m so have a great weekend you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navarra
4: slash support